0: Good evening. Welcome to revolution. Um, tonight we're going to conclude our study of the first half of the book of Mark. And so for the past few weeks, we've been talking about and asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is this man healing the sick and demon possessed? Who is this man calling professional laborers to leave their nets and follow him? Who is this man? who contradicts the religious leaders of his day with both his words and his actions. So tonight we're gonna look at a big chunk of text, Mark chapter eight, verse 22 through 929. Now we're not gonna cover the whole text in detail. Um, In fact, the text can actually be broken up into four smaller sections. So what we're gonna do tonight is I'm gonna give a quick summary of three of the sections and pull a key point out of each one of them and then we're gonna focus in on the fourth one. So to begin, this passage is bracketed by two healing events. We start in Mark 8, 26, where Jesus enters a village where there's a blind man who is brought to him. And here, Jesus does something really weird. He not only lays hands on the man, but as you can see, he uses his own spit and puts it on his eyes. What's even weirder or more intriguing about this event is that unlike other healings Jesus has done, the man is not immediately healed. The text talks about the fact that the man can see, but he can't see clearly. It's only after Jesus puts his hands on his eyes again that the man's sight is fully restored. So the key point I want to pull out of this text is the fact that the man healing came in stages. The end of this section, Mark 9, 14 through 29, tells the story of another healing. Here we have a frantic father who is desperate to find healing for his son, who the text says is demon-possessed. So the father brings the son to nine of the 12 disciples, and they are unable to heal him. So the father at that point begs Jesus if he can do anything, And Jesus responds saying, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. And the father in desperation responds with one of my most favorite verses in all of scripture. I believe, help my unbelief. I love that verse, I really do. And this brings up point number two. The father is struggling with his faith in Jesus. Now in the passage before this event, Mark 9, 2 through 13, we have something more, even more unusual. Peter, James, and John, three of Jesus' disciples, see something incredible, almost beyond description. It's an event that the church calls the transfiguration. The the New Living Translation describes it as such that Jesus is transformed before them and his clothes become dazzling white, whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. So, not only is Jesus transformed into an almost unviewable being, but Moses and Elijah both suddenly appear and begin talking to him. And then Peter is in such a state of shock that he actually suggests that they build three tabernacles, three places of worship for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. So, point three, and the point I want to pull out of this, this event is that Jesus is being transformed into glory. So where I want to focus our time tonight briefly is on Mark chapter eight, 27 through nine one. Now both Kenny and Paul have talked about the fact that the book of Mark is structured somewhat like a court case and that the accusation before the court and the people is that Jesus is the Messiah. We've had various witnesses who have been presented to either prove or disprove this accusation. We've had various people who have been healed, We've had the Pharisees who have spoken out. We've had scribes who have spoken out. We've had even demons who have given their testimony about who they believe Jesus should be. Now the star witness has been called to the stand and it is none other than Jesus himself. And that leaves me to ponder, well, wait a minute, why we waited so long to hear from Jesus? Because people have accused him of being the Messiah. The Pharisees, the scribes are claiming that he's not doing anything to be the Messiah. The demons and the devils are trying to scream out that Jesus is more than he appears to be. But no one's asked Jesus whether he's the Messiah or not. Does Jesus himself think that he is the Messiah? I find this interesting because today in our modern society and particularly in American Christianity, we love putting people on pedestals and then expecting them to be role models for us without bothering to ask whether that person wanted to be put on the pedestal in the first place. Now, granted, a lot of people they like being put on pedestals. They like the fact that it brings them fame. It brings them power, brings them prestige. People like seeking out models of beauty, of athletic prowess, of intellectual capabilities. Christians like seeking out personalities who will serve as moral authorities and teachers for themselves and their lives. But I want you to think about someone who you've looked up to, who you've admired, and ask yourself, did they ever ask we place in such a position? I think this is crucial for Christians today because we tend to elevate people before finding out if they're even willing to take the position on in the first place and whether they actually want it or not. And if they do want it, what they want to do with it. And that's what Jesus is confronted with here. We finally get his take on the accusation, is he the Messiah? Does Jesus himself believe that he is the Messiah? And being typical Jesus, he doesn't give a straightforward answer. Instead, he does something most interesting. Verse 27 of chapter 8 goes, Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him so jesus in his typical fashion answers the question by asking a question of his own what are the opinions of the people he asks these he asks his disciples and the disciples answers are not unexpected some say he's John the baptist returned from the dead some say he's elijah returned from the dead some say he's one of the other prophets come back if we ask the question today of people who is who do people say jesus is you probably get answers sort of like, he's a great teacher, he's a great ethical person, he's a leader, he's a social revolutionary. All of those answers, both past and present, miss the mark. They're not necessarily wrong, but they're not the answer Jesus was seeking. So he asks his disciples then, who do you say that I am? And of all the disciples, it's Peter who comes up with the answer, you are the Christ, or as some translations say, you are the Messiah. So Peter, who just, as we saw earlier, wants to build temples of worship for him and to Jesus and Elijah and Moses, actually gives the correct answer. Or does he? Because Jesus immediately responds with instructions for them not to share this fact with anyone. And his reason is what immediately follows in verse 31 he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and he said this plainly and peter took him aside and began to rebuke him but turning and seeing his disciples he rebuked peter and said get behind me satan For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now here, what does the word rebuke mean? According to an online dictionary I looked up, rebuke means to express sharp disapproval or criticism of someone because of their behavior or action. So here, Peter is not simply disagreeing with Jesus' statement that he must suffer, be killed, and rise from the dead. He's actually expressing that Jesus is in the wrong, that his suffering, that him saying that he is to suffer and die are not what a Messiah, a Christ is supposed to do. So why does Peter do this? Peter has given the correct answer. Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't understand what that answer means to Jesus. Peter and the other disciples have done what everyone else around Jesus has done, the Pharisees, the religious people, even the demons. They've placed Jesus on a pedestal and assumed that he's going to be and do what they want him to be and do. The people, they want a conquering Messiah. They want a king, a ruler to come in and kill all the Romans and kick them out of Israel and take on all their other oppressors and restore Israel to its former glory. The religious leaders want a holy messiah. They want someone to come in and to teach the people the law and how to keep it according to the Pharisees' interpretations and understanding of the law. The demons, well, who knows what the demons want? Um, Peter and the disciples, we know what they don't want. They don't want a suffering messiah. They don't want a dying messiah. They don't want a resurrected messiah. Because let's be honest who benefits from a suffering Messiah, even today. A conquering Messiah brings all sorts of tangible benefits to his followers. They get to share in the glory of conquest. They get to kill anyone and everyone who opposes them or disagrees with them, or they just don't flat like. They get to share in the power structure that comes in the Messiah's wake. They get to share in the wealth that the Messiah brings. A suffering Messiah brings none of that. And that's why Jesus told his disciples not to reveal what Peter had proclaimed, that he is the Christ. Because he knew, even before they did, that they had given the right answer, but they had failed the exam. They didn't grasp that their definition of who the Messiah was and would be did not match Jesus' definition of who he is and what he was here to do. Jesus didn't come to be a social revolutionary, although he continues to upend social structures and norms to this day. He didn't come to reveal a more ethical and moral way to live, although that can be a consequence of following him. He didn't come to be the greatest teacher of all time or the greatest prophet of all time, although he did do that. Jesus in his own words came to suffer, to die and to rise from the dead. His words, not mine, not anyone else's. And to miss this point is to miss the reason why Jesus came to earth in the first place. Now following that, I have some good news, bad news, and then more good news. So we'll start with the first good news. Like the disciples, not initially getting the point about Jesus does not mean in game. The disciples will spend the rest of the book of Mark and indeed the rest of their lives coming to grips with Jesus' plain teaching about who he is and what he plans to do. Like the blind man, the disciples' understanding will come in stages. It will come gradually. And like those disciples, we too, when we start the journey of following Christ, of truly understanding who the Messiah is, we learn it in bits and pieces We pick it up in leaps great and small we begin to grasp who Jesus truly is and what he desires to accomplish in our lives and like the father of the demon-possessed child we will also come to places where we're in the journey where we just don't understand what Jesus is up to where we discover that we've been relying less on trusting Jesus and more on our faith, and certainty, and beliefs and truths about Jesus. And as that certainty collapses, like the Father, we too can cry out to our Lord, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. So that's the first good news. Now comes the bad news, starting in verse 34 of Mark chapter 8. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now as a lot of you know, I'm a former Southern Baptist. And this is where my Southern Baptist upbringing goes to war with scripture. See, to be a true Southern Baptist, I should always present Jesus in a very appealing and positive light so that people will turn to him and be saved. And I'm not gonna do that tonight. In fact, what I'm about to say, if you're not a Christ follower, should honestly discourage you from following, wanting to do anything, wanting anything to do with Jesus, excuse me. And if you are a Christ follower, you may actually be appalled by what I'm about to say. So here it goes the bad news. Jesus calls people to follow the same path he took, to suffer, to die, to rise again. That's the crux of the Jesus story. God becoming human, to die on the cross, and to rise from death to eternal life. And Jesus calls those who wants to be his followers to follow in his footsteps. To rise again, yes, eventually, but to possibly suffer and eventually die. That's not the evangelical Southern Baptist way of proclaiming Jesus. Jesus is supposed to save us from our sin and our trials and tribulations. He's supposed to heal us. He's supposed to fight against the devil and his minions. He's supposed to bring life and life eternal. And abundantly and all of that is true but what we forget and what mark is trying to point out here to his, his readers is that following Jesus means following Jesus it means taking the same journey he took and that journey ultimately leads to the cross for the cross is not just a religious symbol of comfort to wear around our necks or to place on top of our church buildings The cross means actual death. It costs, it truly costs to follow Jesus. And for many of his followers over the past 2000 plus years, it has meant their death in painful and horrific ways. Dietrich Bonhoeffner, who was martyred by the Nazis near the end of World War II, states this truth as plainly as possible in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which I encourage everyone to read at some point. And what he says is the cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So that's the bad news. But here comes the second piece of good news. Death is not the end of the journey. There is life after death. Death is not the end for Jesus. It is, will not be the end for those who follow him. It is through the gates of death however you approach it, whether through suffering and martyrdom, old age, sickness, however you go through it, that Jesus' followers will begin the greatest part of the journey, and that is spending eternity with Jesus and seeing him in his full glory. And just as the disciples got a brief glimpse of Jesus' glory during the transfiguration, we will see him in all all eternity and be able to bask in his divine presence that is the encouragement mark is trying to give to his readers If you remember all the way back in week one we talked about that the believers at the time of mark is written were suffering under the rulership of nero they're being hunted they're being arrested they're being thrown into the lions then they're being crucified they're even being burned alive mark does not promise that the suffering will end or be alleviated rather He states that in their suffering and torment, they are walking the same path as Jesus, their Savior and Lord. And that one day, not today, not tomorrow, but one day, they will be with their risen Savior and rejoice with him in the glory of heaven. So, to conclude, who is Jesus? That's the question we've been asking. Who is he? The answer is that he is the Messiah, the Christ, as Mark stated at the beginning of the book. But for Jesus, the being the Messiah has a far different and greater meaning than everyone can possibly grasp. For Jesus, he is the Messiah who must suffer and die, but ultimately rise from the dead so that God's ultimate purpose, the salvation of humanity, can be accomplished. That makes Jesus someone more than someone who simply heals or divides, who convicts or unites. As the transfiguration reveals, he's more than all of that. He is God incarnate. God come to earth in the flesh. And he desires for us to follow him. If we're willing to follow the same path he's taken to the cross and beyond to eternal glory before God. This wasn't an easy sermon to write and the ending well we'll just we'll go with this this coming week ponder your personal answers to the question who is jesus who is jesus to you ask yourself does my answer square with what jesus himself sees as him being the messiah is it possible that we have restricted jesus made him too small so that he fits too comfortably in our lives. Because Jesus desires to be more than you can possibly imagine. And that's what it means for him to be the Christ, the Messiah, to be more than we can imagine. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that Jesus is more than we can possibly imagine. That he has come not just to teach, not just to heal, not just to convict us of sin, but to bring us life and life eternal, to bring us back into your presence. Tonight I just pray that your spirit has been moving and has been working and that in this coming week we will all take a look and see who it is is this jesus who we all worship thank you for being who you are in your son's name amen